For almost three centuries, Sotheby's has been the place to discover the greatest stories of creativity. We've been the temporary custodians of some of the world's finest treasures, which you can see on display in our galleries on any given day. Welcome to Sotheby's Talks, the podcast that celebrates art, culture, and collecting. I'm Marina Ruiz Colomer, and I want to invite you inside the world of Sotheby's, a place where you can find the extraordinary, including contemporary art, old master paintings, rare books, jewelry, and memorabilia. I'm a specialist in Sotheby's contemporary department, and throughout my career, I have championed the work of female artists. In 2021, I co-organized the first cross-category sale of work by women at Sotheby's. In the last few years, we have seen the demand for work by female artists increase dramatically, but there's still work to be done. So on this podcast, we're sharing some of the conversations we've been holding with our experts, along with tastemakers, collectors, and luminaries from the world of art and culture. For millennia, female power has been portrayed, mediated, and exerted through visual art. But to what extent have women been packaged to fit a male template? And how much have they been able to control their own image? In today's episode, which was originally recorded as a live event at Sotheby's in London, Sotheby's specialist Holly Brain was joined by Britain's best-known classicist Mary Beard for a conversation about how Western culture has represented powerful women throughout the ages. They discuss sculptures of ancient goddesses like Aphrodite and Athena, depictions of Queen Elizabeth I as Gloriana, and contemporary portraits of cultural icons and politicians. Here's host, critic, and academic Shahid Abari with more. Should we start by trying to understand exactly where the Western tradition of female representation actually begins? And then, and then perhaps we can discover if there is some sort of continuity or thread that connects those origins with how women are represented today. So Mary, I'm going to invite you to start our conversation. Uh, and I'm going to say something extremely predictable, <laughs> uh, which is that I don't think that you can properly understand not just the ways we represent women now, but the debates and, and contestations and complexities of that, unless you go back to the ancient world. I think in some ways, the building blocks are already established mm -hmm. there. They're invented there in the West. And the absolute classic example has to be you know, the most powerful woman in the divine pantheon of the Greek world is Athena, patron deity of Athens. What stands out for me is that she is represented as a man. Essentially, she is a female deity, but here she is in armour, she's helmeted, she has all the accoutrements of maleness. So it's a classic case of the powerful woman being dressed as a bloke. And if by any chance you missed the message, on the right-hand side, underneath the statue from the Parthenon, Underneath is a, you just see a small bit of relief sculpture. What that showed was Pandora, the, the idea of the first female who messed things up and opened the box and let out trouble into the world. So actually the real woman is underneath being the villain 
the powerful woman is the man at the top. And I, I, we've never escaped that, I think. Well, we, we look at it now and we think, oh, that's Athena. But she's really shocking, you know, because she's, she's non-binary, basically, you know, in modern terms. I think we have Medusa next. We, we could spend the whole hour uh, going through classical women, but we can start to add bits to that basic template of female power. And here is female power for the bad. And what ancient, both Greco and Romano art does is give you two options of how to see the transgressive power of woman. And that often clusters around Medusa, the, the Gorgon with the snaky locks, who will turn anybody who looks at her to stone. You see that in two versions. Uh, one, an early version, where Medusa is literally monstrous. She's telling you, don't look at me, you know because I will turn you to stone if you do. The other version of this, goes, again, it runs through all our versions of what a dangerous woman is. A woman is either dangerous because she's horrible, or she's dangerous because she's beautiful and lovely, and she is going to turn you to stone. But she's going to do that through seduction and beauty. Right? And, that, and that kind of opposition between the hag and the temptress is something that we still play with um, and was being enjoyed and, and played with back in the 6th century BC. So uh, and these have gone really, really deep into our, <laughs> into our way of seeing things. And here you can see just how deep they've gone because there is barely a modern female powerful politician who has not herself been represented as Medusa. So you've got Benvenuto Cellini's statue from Florence of um, Perseus the hero holding up the decapitated head of the severed head of Medusa. And this is part of Trump's campaign's memorabilia from the Trump election campaign, where the head of Perseus has been replaced by the head of Trump, and the severed head is Hillary, right? And what I think is amazing about that is that I bet, I mean, this was on tote bags, on fridge magnets, on mugs, you know, you name it. It must have been bought by people who would never really have known what the myth of Perseus and Medusa was. Somehow the point is kind of embedded, you know, in culture, in Western culture, about the man triumphing over the monstrous woman. <laughs> and even, let me tell you, even Theresa May was written off by the Police Gazette as the Medusa of Maidenhead, her <laughs> constituency. <laughs> so you can see that we're still dealing with those images. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Mary. Is the representation of men and women straightforward in this period or, as we suspect, were there debates about how these figures were being represented? These images are being are more complicated from the very beginning. The, the ancient world is both, as it were, giving us the building blocks 
but is also playing with them. And you have one of the most notorious women in the whole of Roman history, Messalina, uh, the, the woman who is you know, a Medusa in all kinds of ways. She reputed to have challenged the prostitutes of Rome to a competition to see how many men she could sleep with in one night. She's married to the Emperor Claudius, right? And here, what's happening here is that she's being turned into a virtuous mother. In some ways, that kind of the literary tradition about Messalina is being, its sting is being drawn by this perfect version of her with her baby. And meanwhile, just so you don't think that it's, that men get off completely scot-free, we've got an attempt to make a really powerful image of the Emperor Claudius, her husband. Men are implicated in the problem here because whoever did this sculpture of Claudius, making him look a bit like the king of the gods, has succeeded, I think, in doing nothing more than making him look very stupid indeed, right? So that kind of, those, that repertoire of male power doesn't always come off. And I think that's something, you know, images aren't always successful. Do you think that's deliberate? Is it the, is it the uh, eagle at his, his feet? What is it? I think it's the eagle nibbling his knee. <laughs> yeah. It's just, you know, it's rightly saying, I am Jupiter, the king of the gods, with my eagle. But he's also saying, I mean, it looks very silly. Now, you can imagine that classicists go two ways on this. One is, mm, you know, they didn't quite pull it off, did they? The other is, you know, even in the imperial sculpture workshops, the desire to satirise the emperor actually won out. Yeah. There is always, and I think... This is where we, you know, women like me, you know, constantly going on about the problems of representing female power. Yes. You know, you've got to re remember that in terms of male power, it's, n you know, it's not as simple as you might think. And the boundary between power and mad megalomania, yes. which is what we learn about throughout the images of Roman emperors, is a very dodgy one. It's, it's not as if men and the representations of men are completely straightforward. They're also bound up with the problems yeah. of the representations of women. Yeah. I think we're moving on now to modern times with you, Holly. Um, Holly, is there a, a, a recognisable standard trope, as it were, of how women have been portrayed here? Yes, absolutely. And I, I think really what we can see here is just one example is really the other side of the coin to what Mary's talking about instead of the um, for example Athena and the how one emblemizes and codifies power we're considering now the sort of real and in inverted commas woman um, and how she's been portrayed and this painting by Belgian surrealist artist Jane Graverell the outline of a nude reclining woman and that as an image, as an icon, as it were, has been represented throughout art history, not just modern art, throughout art history at large, by its very nature, a passive pose. And bearing in mind that for hundreds of centuries, it has been predominantly male artists who've had almost exclusive access to the creation of images of women up until very, very recently. But what I want to focus on about this particular painting is how Jane Graverell was seeing this motif now through a female artist's eyes, and she's literally given us a stencil of this motif, how she's 
maybe making us think and flagging ideas about the emptiness of it, the insubstantial nature of it, and how it has been a literal stencil by which male artists have inserted themselves into a legacy of visual representation, but also played with it and exploited it as a means of exploring their own creative ingenuity. Mm. I think our next image is controversial, interestingly controversial. Yeah, well, I mean, so this is, is the later Benini version of an original Hellenistic sculpture known as the Sleeping Hermaphroditus. And what I wanted to focus on was how this reclining nude woman was as much of an icon even then, because it's one that's been manipulated in this case, but I sort of feel I should pass over to Mary to talk about <laughs> a classical sculpture. Well, it's, it's, it makes a great pair with the Graverol, because yeah. this yeah. is what Graverol's got in mind. And it, this itself is a kind of wonderful composite, because the actual figure is, is Greek original, probably second century, with, with some Bernini additions. The mattress is entirely Bernini. I think it makes a wonderful get kind of pair for lots of reasons with the Graverol, because whoever did that original nude, almost nude figure, which is the centerpiece, is already playing with our expectation. Because this is, we're seeing it here from the same vista as we see the Graverol. Um, and we think, um, but, the, but the, the complexity is different. Because what every visitor to this sculpture in the Louvre knows is that this looks from the back as if it is a classic woman constructed by male artists to satisfy male gaze. You also know that if you walk round it to the other side, you find that she's not a woman at all. Or only, she's only partly a woman. She has breasts, but she also has male genitals. So that's a real reveal, isn't it? It, you go is a, it is a fantastic, it's worth doing in the loop. <laughs> you see some people, some people know what they're going to get on the other side. Yeah. Other people think, ah, oh, hang on a minute. And I think it's a very interesting piece, particularly within current debate, because I mean, I think it's a reminder that look, back in the, third century BC, there were issues about, mm -hmm. about gender identity, how fluid it was. That sculpture only makes sense if, if it's put in the context of people starting or maybe going on asking the question, oh, what's a woman and what's a man? And if it's a joke, because I was, you know, when I was an undergraduate, I was taught it was a bit of a joke. You know, if it's a joke, it's an extremely expensive joke. And you, what you do is you see, you see that gender is being challenged. Mm. And so even within what looks like the most classic, standard image of the woman, it's kind of undermined. You can't ever, you know, they're already saying, can't take this at face value. We're still talking about that, though, being debated by men, right? There is still a presumed male viewer. Does that change things? Do you think that we're more sympathetic if we think of a female viewer? Like whose desire, I guess, we're thinking about? Yeah, I think it's 
I, akin to what Mary was saying, have have studied it in the, in the form of it being a bit of a joke. Yeah. Um, and the joke is kind of on the male viewer for having po possibly felt a bit of lust about yeah, this sculpture. A joke. Yeah. And then getting the surprise and thinking, oh, yeah. my darn lust. Um, yeah. it's, a, it's a sort yeah. of heteronormative form of entertainment. Yeah. yeah. Is the question more click up with this beloved thing? <laughs> The, the Roca Vivina, so um, very well-known painting in the National Gallery. Again, we're, we're seeing that same trope again of the recumbent nude woman from the same angle, actually, as yeah. the sleeping hermaphrodite um, with her beautiful, sinuous form. And this actually it has a very interesting history. It was um, famously uh, slashed by a, a suffragette who attacked it with a knife um, and it's been perfectly restored and there's no indication of that in the plaque next to it in the National Gallery. But the suffragette speaks about it really eloquently and says how she had decided to destroy the most beautiful figure in history in retaliation against the government destroying the most beautiful character in history, Emmeline Pankhurst, um, who'd just been incarcerated. So, I mean, that as an anecdote underscores kind of the icon that is this reclining nude woman because that is it's an act of iconoclasm yeah what do we make of her gazing at her in that's what i think is really interesting isn't yes. it who's you know who's looking at who and what mm. bits are we looking at and all you see is her face in the mirror but you do see the face yeah do you think there's also a dimension though again a bit like with the sleeping hermaphrodite there's a kind of looking at this through a male lens as yes incredibly sexy, the embodiment. I mean, this is Venus, the embodiment of the hyper-idealized vision of love, sex, lust, um, but there's vanity and there's a kind of ability to slightly deride her for that as well. Yeah. 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 With her little son, Cupid. Yeah, little son, Cupid, yeah. <laughs> the subversive quality that we've been talking about in the Grover, in the sleeping hermaphrodite, certainly, that is not just a modern phenomenon, Mary. We also see it in some of the works you're about to talk about now. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it, it's easy to be too simple about the disempowerment of women in art. I mean, I think it's, it's a very important bedrock of yeah. how women have been represented, but it's always being subverted. And I, I feel that very strongly about the Artemisia Gentileschi, Susanna and the Elders were these two ghastly men um, in the biblical story are threatening, they're looking at her, they're ogling her, and they are about to um, try to set her up by threatening to say that they've found her uh, committing adultery unless she sleeps with them. And the upshot of the story in the book of Daniel is that Daniel heroically um, makes it very clear that their story is a is, is cooked up because you know, one of the most important I issues in the story of Artemisia's own life story is that she was raped. And uh, I think her painting of a woman being threatened in this way has always been difficult to know how, how to read it. But one of the ways of reading it is that this painting actually turns the victim into victor because actually those guys don't get away with it. Mm. Artemisia's rapist sort of did, mm. but Artemisia manages actually to use paint and to use the story uh, of Susanna and the Elders, which she does several times, 
to, in a sense, claim some women's language here in relation to the, the scene of harassment and rape? It's such a loaded image, isn't it? Yeah. You understand that context. We're moving on now. Back to you, Holly. Yes. So it's it struck me actually how um, of all of the sort of modern pictures that I've chosen, I've pretty much always cited a classical Hellenistic <laughs> reference, which does speak to my education. But I think also it, it flags how much antiquity continues to sort of contour our, our visual values. Um, an etching by the German artist Katakolwitz. There was a phenomenal exhibition at the RA called Making Modernism, and uh, it was focused on a group of women artists at the turn of the century. And I mean, bearing in mind in terms of the context for modern art, what's often cited as the advent of modern art is Manet's Luncheon on the Grass. And that what was so sort of um, groundbreaking about that was that it depicted, a, in inverted commas again, real nude woman i.e. not a goddess, uh, it wasn't part of mythology or allegory, this was a woman in a contemporary context with clothed contemporary men. And so we're looking at the language of the advent of the avant-garde centered on a real nude woman. So it does flag up this interesting question for women artists at the time, how do they harness the language of modern art without perhaps deploying the iconography that has been used to disempower women. And Katakolwitz has a lot of nude women in her output, but she does, she locates it in a very, very specific female world, which is flagging the corporeal and emotional realities of being a woman and often a, a mother as well. And the image that I've chosen to contrast it with is the Loaka one. Um, which again, I feel Mary should perhaps talk about more. Um, I, I learned about this image when I was studying classics and it's the story of the Trojan um, priest who um, warned the Greeks, warned the Trojans, sorry, not to take in the horse. Um, and he was punished for his um, prescient warning by uh, the gods and a sea serpent was sent to attack him and his children. And this is really considered the sort of prototypical image of suffering in Western art. And certainly when I learned about it, we focused on uh, the children who were essentially kind of miniaturized adults. You can't really tell that they're children. So there's a conscious choice there in kind of shrinking the children to be miniature adults. The idea being that, you know, in facing trauma, there's a sort of premature engagement with, um, with growing up. Um, if we go back to the Katakolwitz, the, the child is very real in the Katakolwitz. And I think they bear really close comparison in the geometry of them, the fact that you've got the dependence. Yeah. I think it's highly plausible that Katakolwitz did know the Lorca and she, unusually for women of the day, did have formal training in art. Yeah. Um, and, and what she's done, I think, is, is even bolder than it looks now because the Lorca one is not just an amazing ancient sculpture with ended up in the Vatican as, in a sense, kind of the, the touchstone of what ancient art was all about. By the time you get to the 18th century, it's also, it kickstarts a whole study of art history, really, and he said, because people are beginning to say, in what sense can the viewer take pleasure in the scene of the man and his kids horribly put to death? What is it about art that enables us to look at that scene with pleasure? So. What Katakolwitz has done is not 
just taken over a, a famous sculpture in order to make her image. What she's done is she's actually appropriated the wellsprings of the whole study of aesthetics and art history. I mean, it's really brave, you know, it's an absolute up yours to mail our um, image there in a way that I think that if you saw it without the Laocoon or without knowing about the Laocoon, you wouldn't know quite how extraordinarily up yours it was. We're moving into the 20th century with female artists who begin to portray women through their own lens, disrupting the male gaze. And this is a painting by Marie Laurence. And I have to say, longingly looking at it, tell us a bit more about it. Oh, I'm so, so glad you like it. I, I absolutely love it as well. What is interesting about Marie Laurence is that she was the sort of the, the face of the acceptable woman artist at the time, which walking early 20th century. And she talks about how she feels uncomfortable among her peers fellow male artists because of their genius. And so she will just stick to the feminine and everything feminine because it's all she knows. And of course you can take her comments at face value, but I do think this painting demonstrates precisely why you shouldn't. I mean, she's got everything wonderful and ladylike and feminine there. It's the lovely Rococo dress, the beautiful pastel palette, the pearls, symbol of virginity, replete with bows, but the breasts are out. <laughs> And that wasn't okay uh, for the lady amateur artist. <laughs> I think we do, there is a provocation here dressed up as something lyrical and beautiful and safe. Actually, so when I showed this image first to Mary, she commented on the, the crossed arms um, and also the crossed legs. And we have the Venus of Cnidus, which is kind of the originator of this idea of you know drawing attention to the very place these yeah. subjects were ostensibly trying to cover yeah. in a way that i think it's very hard for us to recapture now this is a totally shocking image this is supposedly a copy of the first ever female full-sized greek nude it now looks like every other nude we've always ever seen and walked past hugely oh you know and there's hundreds of them um, but at the time, this was, you know, a, an image which, in a sense, I think makes a nice reading with the Lorenza because it was absolutely well, shocking. And the, the first people, the sculptor offered this to, but the city said, no, thank you. You know, we're not having that. And it became not only a huge tourist attraction, but I think this also really fits with the Lorenza. It became infamous because what it did to people, there was one very, very famous story, which I shall bowdlerize slightly, where it, during the night, um, a young man who'd been in love with it for, for weeks and weeks and weeks, lusted after it, got locked up with it at night in its temple uh, and made love to it from behind. It's the power of imagery. And so when you then, someone like Rosa, taking that image no she's not stupid she knows a lot about this sculpture mm, absolutely and so she's underlining the fact that what she's making is a potentially dangerous and i think it's you know one of the biggest tragedies of actually western art history is the way we've come to take these for granted instead of seeing them as really edgy shocking edgy difficult pieces yeah yeah wonderful we've been looking at um women portrayed by women through their own lens 
let's now have a look at how powerful women have been represented in Western culture in general and the kinds of symbols that these artists might use to express women's power. The first one is one that many of us will know, Mary. It's uh, Elizabeth I's Armada uh, portrait. It's uh, one of several uh, taking the same theme as of the, the victory of the Spanish Armada. For me, what this does is in a sense it goes back to the, the question of how you represent a woman that's, that's power. Because in a sense, we've lost the real person here. We don't know where the real body is. We see her head and we see her hands. But otherwise, it is female power represented by excess of fabric and jewels. And in this case, pearls. Pearls being the classical symbol of virginity. So it's almost as if She's a kind of a mannequin of power rather than a queen. I don't see a queen there. I see a kind of a, a model of what power might be if you tried to represent it in female dress. Yes. I, find, I find them quite sort of unpleasant images. Mm. Wishing that was uncomfortable, that incredibly. You couldn't possibly be comfortable <laughs> off, could you? Yeah. We have Andrew Lupel next. Yes, I think that this is just an interesting point of comparison in terms of how the representation of, of power, specifically a woman monarch, has changed. I mean, the Queen didn't sit for Warhol. This is not a portrait that she had control over. Yeah. And so it's introducing a, a really interesting new dimension about, about the power of the image, I suppose, and who has power over their own image. Um, and, and it ties very much into Warhol's obsessions with culture and celebrity and he once said that he wanted to be as famous as the queen and i don't know i i don't know the answer to this but i have wondered whether the proliferation of this image and by its nature as being a print and it could be reproduced etc which is specifically what he wanted to do whether that accessibility has diminished the queen's power or enhanced it yeah i, I don't i don't really know i could see there'd be arguments for both the next we have these two portraits by Paul S. Benny. Um, they're of Baroness Amos and Lord Sainsbury. Mary, why did you want us to look closer at these portraits? Well, I think that the, the kinds of issues that we've been talking about, they go right through to modern portraits, modern images of modern people in power or celebrities. And again, what I felt here was the way that the portrait of Valerie Amos often looked at on in terms of a, a, you know, a kind of outsider's portrait. You know, this was one of the very first portraits in the House of Lords of a black peer. It, it's kind of seen in those terms. But I think when you compare it with poor old Lord Sainsbury, um, there is absolutely no question here that, that Benny's version of Amos really wins out. You know, there is a woman who's turned her kenty cloth in the House of Lords, where everybody's wearing silly old ermine, yeah. uh, into a, an image of her own particular power, identity and symbolism. And you know, it's going back a bit to the Emperor Claudius with Lord Sainsbury, 
afraid that um, <laughs> the, in the end we think of, you know, I live in a university which is full of pictures of men in ermine or men in suits. And they do define, in a way, our vision of power. But when you put those two together, you know, you can see that in some ways I'd like to think that men are sort of a bit let down by that yeah. standard image. Yeah. You know, that's all they can be. You know? <laughs> a man in power can only be that. So, you know, feminist that I am, I think there is a reason for seeing that some of these things get much more complicatedly turned over. And, you know, Sainsbury needs a bit of candy cloth and some yellow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think here, in a sense, this is ring composition. We've come back to the very beginning about... You know, but ultimately, whatever you can do if you're Benny and you can take Valerie Amos and all the complexity, ultimately the kind of cliche of woman in power image is that just like Athena, women in power... Have a uniform. They have a uniform and it's as close to being a man as you could possibly get. I mean, I'm sure it's a very sensible outfit, right? If you're kind of you know, hopping off planes and uh, there's all sorts of female politicians who claim that if you try to go on a stage in a skirt, you risk being upskirted and all. <laughs> I'm sure it's hugely sensible, but most of all, it's turning you into a bloke. I mean, I, I almost wore my suit today and I knew you were going to make this point, <laughs> so I didn't. Um, but... I, I, I do I do have a suit um, on a personal note, and I definitely either I, I wear it very very consciously. I there are there are moments in time when I know I need to bring out the suit, and not the fuchsia leotard or, or whatever. Um, and it's because not to say that there aren't suits which are incredibly feminine, and certainly suits that that men couldn't wear. But there's no getting around the fact that for centuries it's been the uniform of the professional man, and it's therefore it is codified. And I, I mean, I don't know what it says about me, but I, I know that I do lean into it when I want to be in an atmosphere where I have to, I don't know, impart a certain degree of confidence or professional status. I bring out the suit. Well, I would I, have I great faith. I don't own one. <laughs> I, mean, I don't own Oh, wow. One. I'd also just like to proffer a final huge thanks to Shahida and Mary for being with us today. Thank you. This was Sotheby's Talk season one. Thank you for joining us. To step further into the world of Sotheby's, you can visit any of our galleries around the world. They're open to the public. For more information, visit sotheby's.com. And don't forget to follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Season 1, which features conversations with guests including Marina Bramovic, Mary McCartney, Tracy Emin, Paloma Picasso, and Julianne Moore, is now live. <laughs>